Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome, and happy Thanksgiving to our American listeners. Hope the holiday treats you well. In the spirit of being thankful, it's been a few episodes since I've given a shout-out to our amazing supporters over on Patreon. I know times have been incredibly tough this year, but it means so much that you choose to support our show with your donations. I'm also excited to announce that we'll be doing a special bonus round of Patreon-only merch for the holidays. This one is courtesy of Jessup's General Store, and is full of all kinds of cool occult-inspired designs. There's a link in the show notes to Jessup's if you'd like to check it out for yourself. If you don't want to miss out on this special merch pack, Sign up to support us at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. You'll not only get ad-free episodes, bonus content, and some killer swag, but our absolute undying gratitude as well. Speaking of merch, as I mentioned last week, you can now proudly proclaim you're one of the children of the night with some Tales to Terrify swag. Shirts, mugs, stickers, there's a little bit of everything. And better yet, 
everything in the store is currently on sale. Just head over to our website and click Merch in our main menu. Thanks again to our friends at Tee Public for helping get us all set up. We'll have more designs coming soon, so keep your eyes peeled. We're sticking around Winnipeg, Manitoba this week as we dig a little deeper into some of the many haunts that weave through the city's history. Last week, we visited Lower Fort Garry. Tonight, we're headed to the oldest Protestant church in the Red River Settlement, or, more specifically, the graveyard that adjoins it. As far as cathedrals go, St. John's Anglican Cathedral is pretty unassuming. Typically, the word cathedral conjures visions of huge vaulted ceilings, towering spires, and ornate stonework. But St. John's is a fairly modest building from the outside, a relatively small stone structure with a couple of short square towers. Despite the age of the cathedral, which was built in 1822, the cemetery predates it by at least ten years. Beneath the rows of headstones and statuary lie the remains of several of the province's most prominent historical figures. So, when stories of an apparition in the graveyard began to surface, there was plenty of speculation as to who it could be. Seeking a little peace and quiet away from prying eyes, the young couple decided to go for a romantic moonlit walk. And what better place to get away from the noise and crowds than a lonely, silent churchyard? They strolled slowly, arms wrapped tight around each other, warding off the creeping chill of the late summer breeze. They wove their way between the gravestones, stopping to examine the ornate carvings or to read the inscriptions. He went before, the young man read on one of the headstones. She, for a little, tried to live without him, liked it not, and died. That's so sad, she said, lip pouting with inflated distress. I don't know, I think it's kind of romantic, he said, pulling her close and squeezing her tightly against him. The heat that passed between their bodies was palpable, an exchange of energy that sent flutters through her chest. She took a half-step back, grasping his hands in hers and staring up deeply into his eyes. For a moment, the world seemed to fade away, everything soft and gray compared to the deep, piercing emerald of his eyes and the cool blue glow of moonlight on his face. Then something in the corner of her vision moved, something bright and white and flowing. It caught the light only briefly, and before she could shift focus, it dipped back into shadow as clouds smothered the moon. What is it? he asked, sharp with sudden concern. I, I thought I saw something, a figure, she said with a shiver as she scanned the grounds. The rows of tombstones seemed haphazard now, 
broken, gray teeth jutting from the earth. And the cemetery felt more desolate than private. He wrapped his arms around her from behind and leaned his chin on her shoulder. I'm sure it's nothing, he whispered into her ear. Just a rabbit or a piece of blowing trash. But as the clouds swept free of the face of the moon and bright light cascaded down once again, she saw it. And this time he did, too. A figure draped in flowing white fabric that seemed to dance and shimmer in the light. Its gaunt, skeletal form seemed almost translucent in the moonlight as it stood swaying in its shroud. At the sight of it, the young girl screamed and fainted. He caught her, lowered her gently to the ground. But when he looked back up, searching for the figure, it was nowhere to be found. The young couple were far from the only people to encounter the specter of St. John's Cemetery. In fact, sightings of the apparition became so frequent that the topic became a common conversation starter. Heard anything new about the watcher among the graves? But one member of the parish didn't find the stories nearly as entertaining as so many others did. The sexton of the churchyard, William Binzier, had shared his doubts about the report from the start. But once the local paper, the Evening Telegram, began reporting on it, and the fascination of the broader Winnipeg community began to grow, he decided it was time to find out for himself, once and for all. Benzier was a skeptic by nature, but the sheer pervasiveness of the accounts had begun to cause cracks to form in his rock-solid conviction. The thought of encountering a spirit seemed nothing short of preposterous, but surely it wasn't a mass hallucination. Either there was something, supernatural or natural, that had taken up residence on the grounds of his cathedral, or someone was playing a very elaborate prank. He concealed himself in a stand of bushes late one evening, prepared for a long and tedious night. The real challenge wasn't going to be catching a ghost, he quickly realized, it was going to be staying awake. The bells of City Hall tolled eleven. Nothing. As the minutes ticked past without the appearance or interruption of anyone or anything, let alone an errant spirit, he became more and more certain it was a hoax, that he was being played for a fool. But at midnight, that all changed. Here's how the newspaper described what happened next. At the witching hour of midnight, he yawned again. The night was cold, so he determined to go home. He started for the gate. As he did so, the moon came from behind a large black cloud, and scarcely ten feet from him, a figure stood by a grave, clad only in a single white garment. The moon was again enveloped by another black cloud, leaving only the motionless white form and the gravestones dimly visible. His courage almost deserted him, 
But the moon again shone out and revealed the figure of a real, live man. Benzier took a moment to compose himself, to settle his beating heart. Summoning all of the authority he could muster, he approached the figure. What are you doing here? he demanded. The figure turned slowly, sheepishly, its gaunt face hollow and shadowed in the moonlight. I've got no place to sleep, came the raspy reply. I'm too sick to work. I brought my blankets and came here for a quiet place to rest, somewhere to sleep in peace. Suddenly, taking the full measure of the situation, Benzier puffed up his chest, his resolve hardening into real authority. This is no place for you, he commanded. You can't stay here. You'll have to find somewhere else to sleep. Despondent, the man knelt and began to pack up all of the belongings he'd had stashed between the gravestones. Arms full of his worldly possessions, the man wandered down the road under the watchful eye of the sexton and into nearby St. John's Park, where he could be found for many nights after, competing with others for a quiet place to sleep. Admittedly, it's not your typical ghost story, but it seems to me, even if that poor homeless soul hadn't been the ghost of the dead haunting the graveyard at night, the lack of compassion shown to him by Benzier would surely have given him enough reason to return as one after death. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from J.A.W. McCarthy. J.A.W. McCarthy's short fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Lamplight, Apparition Lit, Places We Fear to Dread, Cemetery Gates Media, Oculus Sinister, and Nightscript 5. She lives with her husband and assistant cats in the Pacific Northwest. You can call her Jen on Twitter and Instagram at J.A.W. McCarthy and find out more at jawmccarthy.com. Children of the Night, join me for J.A.W. McCarthy's Every Time She Kills Him, first published in the Lost Souls Anthology, September 2018. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I put the nose down the garbage disposal. It's a futile act, of course, but I always do that with the first parts, the soft parts. It's how I let him know I'm in control. When the fingers appear next, I bury those in the backyard. In the shady part between the camellias, I nestle an index finger, two pinkies and a thumb in the grainy earth, atop the previous fingers that now look like nothing more than chicken bones. Sometimes the possums get to them if I don't dig deep enough. But there isn't much else I can do. Can't put bones down the garbage disposal. By the time the eye arrives, though, I have officially given up. He's getting smarter this time. Usually, the parts appear in the same room where I keep the band-aid in. A nose under the desk, an ear in the closet. But last week, I found the nose in a saucepan in the kitchen cabinet. Two of the fingers were in my right rain boot, The thumb surprised me in a jar of cotton swabs. The eye I stepped on because it was on the floor between the couch and the coffee table. He's spreading out, both hiding from me and taunting me, buying time. My neighbour Nina comes over while I'm checking the tin. What are you doing? Startled, I drop the band-aid tin back onto the desk, its metal lid clacking like an antique chattering toy. Your back door was open, she explains straightening in the doorway. I had just buried the eye with the fingers. I didn't like the way it was staring up at me from between the garbage disposal's rubber flaps. Huh, that's not like me, I say. Nina's eyebrows draw together as she passes my expression. What do you mean? You always keep your back door unlocked. We used to joke about making one big house out of our two. She starts to move towards me. Grace? Are you okay? I'm fine. Busy. I pick up the band-aid tin again, comforted by its hollow weight in my hand. Did you need something? I have those shears you wanted. She holds out a plastic bag as she crosses the short distance between us, gobbling up what little buffer I have. Seriously, Grace, are you... The tin clatters to the floor and slides across the hardwood, stopping when it hits the pointed toe of Nina's shoe. This is the only time I've ever been glad to find it empty. The man first appeared to Grace when she was seven years old. Actually, he appeared in pieces, lips under her bed, loose toes in her shoe, a pale blue eye in her toy box. Her parents didn't believe her when she told them. 
She was afraid to touch the pieces, and they were always gone when she brought her mother or father to look. She began to think she had imagined them, like her parents insisted. Then, in a matter of days, the pieces started to knit together out of Grace's sight until one day she discovered half of a man's face and the entirety of his right foot behind her sleeping bag in her closet. She wore the same clothes to school three days in a row and cried until her parents let her sleep in their bed with them. When they made her go back to her room, she put a chair in front of her closet door and piled it high with all of her stuffed animals. Grace hardly slept at night for weeks, always keeping her heavy eyes trained on the barrier between her bed and the closet door, waiting for one of her stuffed animals to twitch or fall out of place. In the morning, her mother would scold Grace while dismantling her furry army, lecturing her about how it was time to grow out of these silly nightmares as she rifled through the closet for that day's outfit. Her mother never saw the man pressed against the wall behind those hanging sweaters and skirts, not even when he grew a torso and both arms. The man became complete as Grace lay paralysed under her quilt. She knew it had taken about six weeks, because she'd been marking the days in pencil on the wall behind her bed. As the toys she'd neatly stacked yet again that night came tumbling down, she squeezed her eyes shut and counted backwards from ten as her father had taught her. When you get to one, you'll see there's no monster, I promise. At eight, she heard the soft click of plastic eyes hitting the floor. On four, the chair scooted across the hardwood floor and tipped over. The footsteps came just as she got to one. It's okay, little girl. I won't hurt you. Grace pushed her fingers into her ears. She tightened her whole face as if she could make her eyes disappear, folded her limbs in and curled her body into a knot so that he wouldn't see her. The mattress protected her from the bottom, the quilt from the top. Nothing was showing for him to touch or pull or bite. She would be so tiny that he would give up and go away. Show yourself, little girl, the man said ripping the quilt from her body. He was tall, with shaggy dark hair and a very wide, thin mouth. As he pulled the sheet down to her toes, she noticed his gnarled fingers, the joints swollen and the skin too weathered for a man who otherwise looked younger than her father. He wore a very fitted dark suit, and the shirt underneath was the same dingy hue as his teeth. When he leaned over her, his tie came loose and swung in her face. The edges of the brown fabric frayed like torn burlap. Go away, Grace hissed. The man lowered his lanky frame onto the edge of the bed. He cupped his hand around her bare foot so that she had to unfurl herself to push him away. Too young, he said after a long moment of observing the girl. He leaned closer as she scurried up against the headboard making herself small again by yanking the hem of her nightgown over her curled toes. You don't have to be afraid, the man continued, his eyes tracing the outline of her face. I would never hurt you. You are perfect. What do you want? Grace demanded. She tried to sound big and strong, but she was still afraid to wake her parents. The man smiled. My wife. She's not here. I know. She can't come back like I can. She can't make her own body. Go away. The man laughed. Don't worry, I will. 
You're no use to me now, anyway. He brought one of his gnarled fingers to her face and gently pushed a lock of her brown hair across her cheek. I'll come back later. Take care of yourself. He kept his finger pressed to the fattest part of her cheek, his rough skin so hot she thought he was burning her, so she bit him and started to scream. At the sound of stirrings down the hall, the man calmly rose from Grace's bed and walked out of her room, his dress shoes clacking rhythmically against the wood floor. She kept screaming, only an abrupt, Mommy! or Daddy! puncturing the constant wail until the man was out of her sight and both of her parents were in her doorway looking bleary-eyed and shaken. Down the stairs, Grace cried, now standing on her bed and pointing. There's a man! I heard someone on the stairs, her mother acknowledged, looking at her father. Grace and her mother hovered at the top of the stairs while her father grabbed his shotgun and headed down. They heard the shuffle of slippers and dress shoes, of racing and ambling. Then the unexpected relief of Grace's father's voice as he ordered the intruder to stop. The blast of the shotgun rattled the entire house beneath their feet. The man lay slumped against the kitchen cabinets, a big meaty hole in the centre of his chest, his limbs splayed as if he was still falling. Grace wasn't supposed to see this, but her mother hadn't been thinking when they both hurtled into the room. As both parents stood frozen and staring, her father still pointing the gun at the man as if he might rise from the dead. A fascinated Grace watched the blood run down the man's suit and pool in twin lakes at his side. It was so dark and shiny, almost as black as the stripes on her school bus. The same dark blood dripped from the man's nostrils and mouth, tributaries down his face and shirt to the twin lakes on the floor. A part of her wanted to touch it, but she didn't seriously consider it until she saw a strange, viscous blob slip from between his lips and onto his chest. While her father stood immobilised and her mother dialed 911, Grace crept to the body and scooped up the small gelatinous mass. No bigger than a silver dollar, it fit comfortably in the palm of her hand, cooling quickly in the air as it jiggled under her breath. The pearlized blob looked like the phlegm she coughed up when she was sick, except it didn't stick to her fingers when she touched it. She knew it was important, though, not just some loose bodily fluid expelled in death. When her father finally placed the shotgun on the table, she saw the band-aid tin next to the napkin holder. No one noticed as she dumped out all of the bandages and slid the man's soul into the empty tin. I use Nina's heavy-duty gardening shears to cut the mouth and nose from the swath of face that has formed. Even though I've given up at this point, I still can't resist slowing him down a bit. Right now, there is a thigh and a knee in my coat closet, and a right foot growing cramped and twisted in one of my favourite pumps. I won't be able to disarticulate and bury for much longer. One day, I would like to smell green grass and regular old rotting food in the garbage, instead of the constant odours of blood and bleach. After I put what I can down the garbage disposal and my whole house once again reeks of bleach, I grab the blue tops from the garage and lay them out all around my bed, up the walls, to the windows, over furniture legs and to the closet door. I tape down my plastic wall-to-wall carpeting. Under my pillow, there's the knife I can't sleep without, and between the mattress and box spring, I've wedged the length of metal pipe. I think of his rough, skeletal fingers touching my face. 
how I have to let him do it every time so he will get close enough. He left a scratch one time. His ragged, yellowed fingernail tore a line from the corner of my mouth almost to my earlobe. A puffy pink abrasion that never bled but grew a dotted line of scabs across my cheek. It was enough to catch the eyes of bartenders and grocery store cashiers. And even a layer of concealer didn't keep Nina from calling me Honey and asking questions. I told her it was nothing. Scratched myself in my sleep, I said, hiding my stubby, bitten-to-the-quick fingernails behind my back. Because I couldn't tell her about all the other times that was so much worse. I couldn't let slip about the time he threw me down the stairs, or broke both my wrists, or punched me so hard he shattered my eye socket and cheek, making me wish for a new face he would never recognise. Once I finish in the bedroom, I go back to the little room I have turned into an office. Every time I enter this room, my eyes are drawn to the band-aid tin, flanked by a box of tissues and a stack of dust-covered paperbacks like soldiers keeping it in place on the end of my desk. There's always been a comfort in seeing it there, knowing where he is even if I can't do anything to stop him from escaping and gathering and growing again. It's so strange that a man like him is content to bide his time in an object no larger than a deck of cards. To let his very essence rub up against rusty seams when he used to shower three times a day and made me launder his suit if so much as a flake of dandruff defiled it. I bought a lockbox once, when it became clear that he would keep coming back, but his slimy little soul always found a way out from under locks and stacks of books and furniture that should have crushed it. And every time I kill him, no matter what I do, his soul never fails to crawl home to the band-aid tin. I found another use for that lockbox, though. Like I do almost daily, I go to the closet and pull it out from behind the sweaters on the top shelf. It was meant for important papers that fit in number 10 envelopes and ring boxes and maybe a little bit of cash, but I think it's roomy enough. A mansion compared to the band-aid tin. Holding it in both hands, I tip the metal box ever so gently until I feel that little bit of weight settle above my left hand. I imagine it sliding against the red silk lining I fashioned. How luxurious it must feel. How much I used to enjoy silk unfurling over my skin when I was younger. I think of how it is so different for everyone. How that little distillation can look like nothing more than the contents of a tissue or seem to glow shimmering with a clear, pure light that defines the person that used to be. As a twinge of guilt ripples through me, I write the lockbox until I feel the weight settle in the centre. It shivers in my hands, but I don't open the box. I never open the box. Grace never forgot the man, which was why she wasn't that surprised when the ear appeared in her jewellery box two days before her sixteenth birthday. Her family lived in a different house in a different town now, but the band-aid tin had travelled with them in the bottom of her backpack, before coming to rest inside a shoebox in the very back corner of her closet shelf. Out of sight, but always close. Though she didn't know what she would do with it, Grace liked knowing that she was in possession of another person's soul. So, when the ear appeared, the raw edge gooey as if it was already preparing for its head, Grace immediately pulled the shoebox from her closet and opened the tin. She had tentatively checked the little container a few times over the years and always found that viscid mass exactly as she had left it, 
never smaller or larger or dried out. This time, though, she found the band-aid tin empty. On the morning of her sixteenth birthday, she discovered a nipple and a bit of skin in the kangaroo pocket of her favourite hoodie. Like she had done with the ear, she tossed the nipple and the empty tin in the dumpster behind the Arby's. The other parts came fast after that. Grace searched every inch of the house for the man's soul, but only found two molars under her desk and a small scrap of scalp, a few long, greasy black hairs attached, tucked into her precalculus textbook. There was a jumble of fingers and toes in her wool beanie, then two watery blue eyeballs under the rug at the foot of her bed. She scattered the pots in random garbage cans and buried them in overgrown fields all over the city, but the man just kept making more and hiding them better round her room. Still, she told no one and started sleeping with a kitchen knife under her pillow. Young woman, she heard one night as she was drifting off to sleep. Young woman. Grace kept her eyes closed, pretended to be asleep until she felt the man pull the sheets from her body. Still too young, he sighed, dropping to a crouch in front of her. Grace was lying on her stomach. She opened her eyes slowly careful to keep her arms under her pillow. The man wore the same dark suit and frayed tie as when she first saw him nine years ago. His hair was still black and stringy, not even a fleck of grey at the temples like her father had developed. This time, she noticed a mildewy smell all round the man, especially when he opened his mouth, and a yellowish film coating his tongue when he spoke. His gnarled fingers were exactly as she remembered as he brushed a fawn-coloured curl from her cheek. You are perfect, he marvelled, shaking his head. But your parents and people would stare. Under her pillow, Grace's fingers curled around the knife's handle. For days now, she had been practising whipping the knife out, one swift, smooth motion at the hinge of her elbow over and over again until she didn't hesitate and the tip of the blade didn't catch on the sheets. She had practiced driving the knife into countless honeydews and watermelons as they wobbled on the kitchen counter. Each time she had enjoyed the initial thwack, that little bit of suction as she cleaved the tough rind of the fruit. My wife can't wait long, though. I'll have to come back when you are alone, the man said, drawing his face close to hers. Grace willed herself to relax, started to rise up onto her elbows. I'm not your wife, she said, driving the knife into the side of his neck. The man's pale eyes were huge, peeled and exposed like when she found them under her rug, as he clutched his throat and fell back onto his heels. Blood sprayed when he pulled the knife from his neck and Grace jumped off her bed. It was the worst thing she had ever seen. Worse than lips under her bed and a piece of scalp in her book. Worse than when her father blew a hole through the man's middle with a shotgun. It was the most exhilarated she had ever felt in her life. This time, when the man's soul slipped from his nostril as he laid lifeless in a big dark pool on her bedroom floor, Grace stomped the gelatinous blob twice with her slipper then slid it up his sleeve. She made sure it was still there when the coroner came to take him away. It's hard to sleep at night. I lie awake, wrapped tightly in my cocoon of sheets and blankets as if I am a child afraid of the dark, refusing to get out of bed because I know he is somewhere in this house linking all of the pieces together. I think of the feet in my closet, 
the face forming again under the kitchen sink, the hands growing so fast they look like scorpions scuttling across the far end of the room just as my eyes are getting heavy. At every groan and creak of the house, I pray for a burglar or an animal in my room, something that I don't have to keep a secret. Sometimes, when I finally do sleep, I wake up in the morning with my hand wrapped around the metal pipe beneath my mattress. Last time, it took him only ten days to fully form. Before that, it was exactly two weeks between the first ear in the pantry and his finger on my cheek as I stiffened in my bed. I hadn't laid the tarps out yet that time, so I spent days scrubbing the walls and floor, haunted by how he fights a little less each time, how he has made me complicit in this same useless cycle. My eyes burning and my fingers puckered even inside the gloves, I realised then that I enjoy the ritual, perhaps as much as he does. I wish I could tell Nina. There was a time when I would have, when I almost did, and she often alludes to moments when we sat in her backyard under fairy lights and a too bright moon not so long ago. My face still puffy and red as an errant, I can't keep doing this, slipped from my mouth after one too many beers. I shook my head as she asked me if I was talking about my job, or a man, or life in general. A man, I remember thinking as she leaned in close and pulled my hand into hers. Does it always have to be a fucking man? There are still times she looks at me with such deep, naked concern when I can't recall a favourite movie or private joke or some strangely gilded road trip memory we're supposed to share. If I tell her the truth now, it will all make sense to her but she will hate me. Then I won't have anyone. I figure I have no more than three days until he returns, fully formed, to take me for his wife. I have to be weightless in my conversations with Nina and keep up with texts and go home right after happy hour, insisting that I am nothing more than simply tired from a long day at work. She can't be worried enough to come by after a tearful phone call, bottle of wine in hand as I am driving a metal pipe over and over again into the man's skull. When the man found Grace at twenty-three, there were two things she knew for sure. That he could find her anywhere, and that she was now the right age to be his wife. By this time, she had moved six hundred miles away from her parents and the people who had grown up with her but never really knew her. She never had a roommate or a boyfriend who could spend the night. She changed her hair colour, the perfume she wore, even the way she walked. She would have changed her name too, had the man ever bothered to ask it. It was a Tuesday when the Band-Aid tin appeared. Resurrected from the Arby's dumpster, it sat smugly atop a pile of unopened mail on her coffee table, willing her to look inside, to check for rusty edges in the same faded print she had memorised in the nine-year span between when she first and last saw the man. Despite the respite of the last seven years, she had always known it wasn't over. Even at sixteen, as she had scattered the pieces of the man all over town, Grace had suspected that he would be back. Like a hand pushing down on the top of her head, the resignation to this cycle, destroy, kill, destroy, run, ground her down to the soles of her feet as she scoured her apartment for an eye, an ear, a tongue and fingers that would soon scrape across her face. This time, she knew to prepare her room for him, plastic sheeting over every surface so that it was like rummaging around in a garbage bag to find her bleating alarm clock every morning a kitchen knife under her pillow again when she had to reject the idea of a gun because her neighbours would hear. 
more plastic in the bathtub, and the kind of thoughts that made her a wretch because she couldn't call the police again because three dead men in sixteen years of one woman's life was too suspicious. So when the man was fully formed and standing over her bed eighteen days later, Grace was ready. At the sound of his voice, she turned slowly onto her side and faced the familiar pale eyes and garishly wide mouth as he crouched in front of her. Who are you? What's your name? she demanded. It doesn't matter, the man said, his diluted blue eyes slowly outlining her from her forehead to her shape under the sheets. It matters to me, she told him, sliding her hand under her pillow. Don't you want to know my name? The man's eyes returned to Grace's face, lingered on her lips. I only want your body. Why me? If your wife needs a body, why don't you choose someone else, someone who won't know how to fight back? The man didn't answer. You know I'm going to kill you, Grace said. Every time you come back, I will kill you. The man nodded, and Grace thrust the knife into his throat. He's drawing it out, teasing me, making me wait. One day late, one day outside of the pattern, and I'm sleep-deprived and raw all over, just like he wants me. Like he used to keep me, on my knees, perfecting, redoing, apologising through gritted teeth. The back of his hand, a pillow over my face as I slept, store clerks and friends refusing to meet my black eye, over and over again because he could. Now I see why he likes the ritual. When he calls me, I play along. It's exhausting, being two different women, the one who answers and the one who prepares. He doesn't start calling until he's very close to being complete, so when I finally hear my name, it's a relief. I answer like I always do, and let him know that I'm ready. Then, in the morning, when he's busy growing skin and drawing his limbs together, I check the top. I consider pissing in the band-aid tin. I practice swinging the metal pipe. Nina calls too. She tries to convince me to get a drink with her tonight. A new bar she wants to try. Some co-worker's cute brother is the bartender. It would be good to meet new people, don't you think, Grace? I promise her tomorrow night, because I need her, because she sees. If I'd known her back then, back when I needed my hand held, back when I needed someone to ask me if I was okay, maybe I wouldn't be this woman now. So I make her believe there will be a tomorrow night. There has to be a tomorrow night. Tonight as I am getting into bed, I will hear him in my closet. I will listen for that little sigh as the last pieces click into place. He'll barely remember what happened last time, the routine outweighing the anomalies in his slumber-rumpled memory. I'm hoping he'll see it in my eyes, though. I hope he feels the same fear I always did as he watches the pipe come down. As she had been the many times before, Grace was prepared the last time the man came. Her only mistake was the pepper spray. When he crouched down to greet her, she pulled a canister from underneath her pillow and unleashed the toxic mist in his face. She waited for him to fall backwards, blind and choking, but he didn't react. While the man did nothing more than grin, the residual mist blanketed the air between them, seeping into Grace's eyes, nose and mouth before she realised what was happening. Woman, 
the man said, grasping her shoulders as she flailed on the bed. I am stronger than you this time. Grace felt him pull her flat onto her back, straddling her on the uneven wood of the bedroom floor. With every truncated, jagged breath she managed to take, her throat burned down to her lungs and she felt like her nose was bleeding. She bucked beneath him and swung her arms, desperately grabbing at any bit of flesh or hair she could feel. The hottest tears burning her swollen shut eyes, her fingers clumsily found the edge of the mattress but the man pinned her arms down at her side before she could grab the knife. (coughs) What are you (coughs) doing? She managed to choke out between coughs, the word catching like cactus burrs in her mouth. What are you going to do to me? It won't hurt, the man said, the weight of the room gathering tightly around him. My wife will be gentle. His wife was a spectre. That was the best way Grace could describe the form that pushed its way towards her as she opened her still stinging eyes. The spectre seemed to split the air, reshaping it into a swirl of dirty grey and black, leaving in her wake a swollen seam that showed the path she'd cut in the dark bedroom. As the spectre neared, Grace's fear was tempered with an unexpected surge of relief. She had feared another viscous mass like the man's soul, a piece of himself that he had squirreled away while he was forming, a corporeal invader like components of a disease slithering into her nose or mouth. This spectre, just a little smoke, just a little burn, might be painless, as he had promised. This knowledge didn't keep Grace from fighting, though. She kicked and bucked and hammered her fists against the floor. She called for a neighbour, no longer caring about the police's questions. When the man leaned in close to muffle her screams, she slammed her forehead into his until he fell backwards. Grace was able to get up onto her hands and knees, but the man grabbed her legs and pulled her back before she could get to the bed. On her stomach now, she saw the spectre wind across the floor, leaving a trail that blurred the air. It parted the hair over her face and seemed to stop there, taking a moment to assess its new host. Instinctively, Grace pressed her lips together and held her breath. As she squeezed her eyes shut, she felt the man's wife slip through her hair and into her ear. It's too late, the man said, his voice distant and muffled as Grace's head filled. The wife was like warm whiskey filling Grace's mouth and sliding down her throat and blooming across her chest. She tunneled through Grace's arms and legs and pooled in fingers and toes. She snaked between heart and lungs and nestled against intestines, made herself known as a heavyweight blanketing kidneys, swelling vessels, replacing blood. As Grace managed to inch towards the bed, she felt the room tightening around a body that she was losing, inside and outside squeezing out what little was left of her. On her tongue, a warm mass gathered, swelling quickly against her teeth. I'll kill you, Grace managed, rolling the mass under her tongue. The man turned her onto her back, hovering with his face just inches from hers. You can't have me, she told him, her fingers finding the box spring. When her hand finally met the knife's handle, it was easy again, like it had been three years ago, and five before that, though the man's face was different in this moment. With the first plunge of the blade, his cloudy blue eyes went clear and wide with shock as if he hadn't remembered all of the other times he died just like this. Hands to his throat, he jerked violently and tipped backwards. He tried to speak, tried to say her name, but only dark blood came from his mouth. At this time she smiled and spit the viscid mass she'd been keeping under her tongue onto the floor. I'll burn you this time, she said, 
letting the sudden weight of her body sink into the hardwood. She shoved the still-sputtering man off of her, causing a spray of blood across her face that felt hot and strange and exciting all at once. I'll burn what's left of you, she swore. Once he's stunned and on his back, I sit astride him and bring the pipe down again just hard enough to make his hands slide from my thighs and his legs stop kicking. I hate this intimacy, the feeling of his muscles tensing against my own. I find it worse than disarticulating his body or cutting up the stray pieces as they appear. Is it really worth it to you? I ask, pinning his arms to the floor while he's still too dazed to struggle. You want to control me so badly that it's worth being alive for only five fucking minutes every few years. It's worth getting killed over and over again? I watch his eyes roll upwards, then down as he struggles to focus on my face. You wouldn't understand, he hisses through pink teeth. Oh, I do understand. My wife will be gentle, he promises with a treacly grin. I wasn't gentle with Grace, I say. I just wanted a body. At that, the grin flattens on his mouth and I can see the slightest tremor rippling under his skin, tightening his jaw. His eyes grow even cloudier, as if he is receding to the last time, two years ago, when I killed him. I am a little insulted that he doesn't remember how different the blade felt that time. I'll take your friend. I'll make her mine, he threatens, his arms pushing up against my hands as he starts to buck beneath me again. Blood streams from his hairline and down his temples, tracing mazes along both ears. I'll kill you first. You'll grow weak and you'll make a mistake. The day will come when you tire of this. That's what I used to say to you, I recall, letting go of one of his arms just long enough to grab the pipe. The room fills with the sickly sweet odour of my husband's insides turning out, his dark murky blood heavy across my eyelids and cheeks and chest. He remains looking at me, just as I want, even as his gaze sinks behind all of that viscera and his whole body seems to deflate under my own. As I break him into pieces, I think of these same parts returning in a few years and how one day I will break them again. He and Grace and I are the same in that respect. Our need for ritual, our commitment despite the outcome, the strange comfort we find in futility. The satisfaction is fleeting, though. Once his soul slips from his ear, I grind my heel into the gelatinous mass, then scoop it up with the end of the metal pipe and drop it into the band-aid tin. In the closet, she's waiting for me. Still sticky with my husband's foul blood, I pull the metal lockbox from the top shelf, careful to keep it level. I feel the little weight in the centre roll and stretch, waking up. This time, for the first time in two years, I open the box. It's done, Grace. That was J.A.W. McCarthy's Every Time She Kills Him, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium, with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories.
Her work has appeared on The Other Stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in NewMyths.com, among others. Find out more about her or her work at jasminearch.com. Thank you, Jasmine. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we carve up fresh delights with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 